The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and Pastor Keith Greer opened us up with a sermon this morning from Psalm 119, Uh, but for the rest of the morning services, we'll be taking a narrative approach to Advent uh, by walking through Luke's Gospels. That's what we'll be doing in the morning. In the evening services, we'll be taking a topical approach to Advent, and this evening, we will look at Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20, a section of scripture known as the Messiah poem or the Christ poem. So if you have a Bible, turn with me as I read along, and you can follow along with a Bible from uh, the church in the pew if you don't have your own on uh, page 983. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us pray. God, these wonderful truths are hard for us to wrap our minds around. But God, we pray that you would open our eyes and soften our hearts, that we may understand the beauty of this poem and its powerful and hope-filled implications. And God, I pray particularly for anyone here this evening that is alienated from you and does not know the hope of Christmas, that you would draw them to yourself. And for those of us who do know you, that you would refresh us with your truth, with the beauty and the transforming grace that is ours in the person of Jesus Christ who has come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, messianic poem has two stanzas. The first stanza is verses 15 through 17 and proclaims who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Lord of glory. And then the second stanza, verses 18 through 20, proclaim what he does, Jesus as the Lord of redemption. Now, an appropriate title for the psalm could be, uh, for this hymn, could be the preeminence of Jesus uh, in glory and redemption. 
I call it a hymn because I, I like to put poetry to music. So if I say hymn, I mean poem or hymn. Um, but this Messiah poetry, uh, like many Christian hymns, it, it captures the wonders of Advent. And, and the first thing we want to do tonight is, is understand it so that we can, we can sing it as a hymn with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, we always want to understand God's words so that we can worship God all the more. So first, let's seek to understand the preeminence of Jesus' personhood, who he is as the Lord of glory. Now, characteristic of Hebrew poetry, the, the first stanza here has a chiastic structure, an A-B-A structure. A is in verse 15 and 17, and it talks about Jesus' glory over all creation. And the B section is in verse 16, and it talks about Jesus' role in creating all, and creating everything. And these ideas are inseparably linked that his true glory is linked with his role as creator. In other words, Jesus surpasses all creatures in glory because he's not just greater by degree, but he is greater in kind. Jesus is utterly distinct as the God-man. Now, our human vocabulary strains to express the unique glory of Jesus. Words can barely adequately describe his glory. And Paul strains here with all his might like a champion weightlifter. You ever watch weightlifting, how they they strain and the veins are popping out? He's straining with all of his might to lift up with appropriate words the glory due to Jesus, to lift up his name with all the glory it deserves. And he attempts to do so by packing this, this poem, this Christ poem, with language and metaphors from the Old Testament, from Genesis 1 and Psalm 2 and Proverbs 8 that highlight the preeminence, the supremacy, the glory of Jesus as the uncreated creator who has been born into the very creation he created. Let's look at it. Verse 15, Paul identifies Jesus as, quote, the image of the invisible God, that like Adam, Jesus has the imago Dei, the image of God. But unlike Adam, he's not made in the image of the invisible God. Rather, he simply is the image of the invisible God. Adam's imaging of God is a constructed image, like, like a painting of a beautiful scene or, or of like a mountain or maybe even a volcano. But Adam is far different from the real thing because his imaging is merely reflective. Jesus, however, as the second Adam, is imaging God in an unconstructed, eternal, intrinsic way. Jesus is inherently the same as God. Jesus is the real deal. He, he rumbles with the glory of God and the power of God. And if you've been here at Westminster, you've heard me say before that Adam reflects the image of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun. It's moon glory, but Jesus images God like the sun. It, it emanates from him. He is the glory of God. Now, this is difficult to capture in words for sure, but Paul strains with all he has and all he knows of the Old Testament and of human language to express the unique glory of Jesus. Another example Paul uses in verse 15 is he's the firstborn of creation. Now, on the surface... This sounds like Jesus is the first created being of creation. But 
Paul doesn't say he's first created. Paul chooses his words very carefully. He says he is the firstborn, not first created. And this is a vitally important distinction. Now, religious skeptics assume that Paul is putting Jesus in the realm of created things. In other words, that he was the first and highest being. But if you're willing to take a careful look, you'll see that Paul's describing something very different. We might categorize it this way, that all things possible can be put into one of two categories. One category will label creator, and the other, creation. And Jesus is placed in the category of creator, not creation. Notice verse 16, for by Jesus and through Jesus, all things were created. That is an absolute claim. Nothing is left out. And just in case you missed the point, he reiterates it. He says all things in heaven and on earth later on in verse 16. In other words, the whole cosmos. And he says all things visible and invisible, both the material and the spiritual, both big things and little things, subcellular things. And due to Jesus' role in creating all things, Jesus holds absolute authority over creation. Every throne, every dominion, he rules not simply over the impersonal parts of creation, like rocks and planets and stars, but he also rules over the personal parts of creation, including rulers and authorities, every animal, human, angel, and spirit. See, Paul is doing all he can here to clarify that Jesus is the glorious Lord over creation. Look at it in verse 17. He states in very clear terms that Jesus was never created, but Jesus always was. As it says in verse 17, he is before all things. Furthermore, in verse 17, as the image of the invisible God, Jesus is not only before all things, but also all things hold together in him. So he rules over all. He holds all things together. He's the one true God who creates all things, rules all things, and sustains all things. In summary, Jesus fits safely in the category of creator, not creation. The one who shines forth the glory of God is his exact representation. However, this is where things get tricky, and this is where words fail us, at least human vocabulary. See, Jesus as creator then chooses according to the divine plan of the Father to penetrate his creation in time and history and become a part of it, to become flesh, to become like us, a man. And this is the hope of Christmas. It's a crazy hope, and it's hard to wrap your mind around. How do you capture this indescribable idea with limited human vocabulary? And this is where we begin to understand just how carefully Paul chose his words. Remember, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, not not the first created. In other words, he who always was, who created all things, was born into the very creation that he himself created. What an amazing, glorious idea. And it means that we can behold the glory of God up close and personal. In the Old Testament, Moses had to hide himself in the cleft of the rock as God passed by. And all that Moses could see was the wake left behind of God's glory, his backside. But we get to see the very face of God. Where? The very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's not even the total picture of Jesus 
as the Lord of glory. There's more to this term, firstborn. In the first century, it carries another meaning. The firstborn son of a Hebrew family was the principal heir to the father. And as such, he had special privileges and a special glory. He also had special responsibilities. But similarly, Jesus is the heir of creation. He has special privileges and a special glory as the firstborn. And this is clarified at the end of verse 16 where Paul says all things are created for him. As the firstborn, Jesus is preeminent in his glory. He's the heir of all creation. Jesus is the son for whom God the Father planned creation and history and eternity and redemption. And every last nook and cranny of creation is first and foremost for Jesus, for his delight, for his enjoyment, for his glory. So as the firstborn of creation, Jesus had preeminent glory as the divine son, the firstborn, not first created. He is the Lord of glory, the uncreated creator who was born into the very creation he created. Now if the first stanza focuses on Jesus's personhood, who he is as the Lord of glory. The second stanza focuses on Jesus' work, what he came to do as the Lord of redemption. Let's delve into verses 18 through 20 to understand Jesus' preeminence as the Lord of redemption. Verse 18, as he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now again, there's some reiteration here in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that Jesus' supreme glory as the God-man is listed here again as the basis for his work as our Redeemer. In other words, because Jesus is preeminent in glory, he becomes preeminent in our redemption. And to drive the point home, Paul uses the term firstborn again in verse 18. But this time to describe Jesus not as the firstborn of creation, but did you notice? The firstborn of what? The firstborn from the dead. Verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Whereas the firstborn of creation emphasizes his glory, uh, as Lord of creation, firstborn from the dead emphasizes his glory in his role as our redeemer. Notice how this uh, verse is worded. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. Now Paul's being very careful in, in his writing And so we need to be careful in our interpretation. Now, some may think the term Jesus is the beginning to refer to his preexistence. I mean, after all, Paul's already written in verse 17 that Jesus is before all things. But I don't think that's what is meant in this verse when he says Jesus is the beginning. See, these two phrases are put next to each other. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is the beginning. In other words, Jesus is the beginning of something new. And what that new thing is? Life. 
Life that defeats death. Life after death. And at his resurrection, Jesus opened up the door for a restored creation. And he gave us a foretaste of what was to come for his people. He leads the way for his people. And he also leads the way for his entire creation. See, as Jesus rose from the dead, so will all those who place their faith in him. And as he rose with an imperishable body, so he will make all things new and imperishable, restoring creation one day to its original glory. Only this time, it cannot be tainted. That's the sense of Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. That his resurrection, in other words, is just the beginning. So much more is to come. He is the Lord of redemption. And as the Lord of redemption, he is going to restore all things. And that's where this stanza goes next. It actually tells us he's going to do two things. He's going to reconcile or restore all things. And then he's going to secondly fill all things. Look at the rest of stanza two where we see him develop these ideas. First, Jesus is reconciling or restoring his creation and his people to God. To God himself, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, at the fall, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled from God and aligned themselves with the serpent, an enemy rebellious kingdom, from that moment on, everything in the cosmos has been broken. First and foremost, their relationship with God was defiled. Instead of walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from God, being ashamed, and they blamed God for their problems. Second, their relationship with each other was tainted. Instead of trusting one another, Adam and Eve, were no longer able to live openly and vulnerably with one another, but they accused and counter-accused each other, and they grew apart from each other. And then their, their relationship with creation was broken. Their, their physical bodies would disintegrate over time and be defiled by pain and sickness and death. And their stewardship of, of creation was, was frustrated with thorns and weeds and toil. And as they rebelled against God so all of creation would rebel against Adam and Eve, starting with their aging bodies, their offspring, and then the rest of creation. And and as a result, everything's broken. But when Jesus came, when God came in the flesh, he came to restore all things. And when he came the first time, we get just a foretaste of his restorative work. Which is why it's interesting, when you look at the miracles of other people, (laughs) um, legends of old, you see them doing silly miracles, you know, turning people to stone. But Jesus' miracles were never like that. They were never silly. They were always restorative. The blind could see, the lame walk, the lepers healed, the dead raised to life. And we got a foretaste of his restorative work in his first coming, but we'll see it filled completely and perfectly at his second coming. Now, when people uh, shop for a home, some people never uh, give time to consider buying a fixer-upper, you know, one of those broken-down houses where nothing works quite right. 
Because when they see a broken down house like that, they see only a headache. They see only the rot and the rust, the mess and the trouble, and they think that is not worth it. But when other people see a broken down house, they give it time and consideration. They see potential. They see past the broken windows and the missing shingles and the cracked foundation. They see what was at one time beautiful and what can still yet become beautiful again. And here's the hope of Christmas. When God looks at his creation like us, (laughs) he sees that everything is broken, like a broken down house. Nothing works quite the way it should. Even though we may discern its original beauty and imagine what it might look like if it were restored to its fullest potential, But here's the hope, that God knows the potential greater than we do. He knows what what was, he, he knows what once was, and he knows what can still yet become. And so the first thing he does when he comes in the person of Jesus is to get to work to restore his broken down house. And restoration is a careful process. As Paul Tripp said, You can determine whether a house is being condemned or restored by looking at the size of the tools being used on site. If you see a crane and a wrecking ball, you know that that house is planned for demolition. But if you see a lot of hand tools laying around, you know it is set apart for restoration. So is it any wonder that when God planned to restore his creation, he used very small tools. He came as a baby. See, the hope of Christmas reaches all the way back to the beginning of human history, where he gave Adam and Eve a very, very small promise. It's hidden right there in Genesis 3, that one day a seed of the woman, of Eve, would be born, and this promised child would one day come and crush the head of the rebellious serpent. Now in the process, this promised one would be bitten on the heel and he would absorb a deadly venom of the serpent. But somehow he would rise again from the dead to start a new work, a lasting work of restoration. And the tool God used to restore the world was not a big tool. It was not a worldwide flood like he did in the days of Noah. That's when he was about demolition and condemnation. It was not fire from heaven like he did in the days of Sodom, but it was on a Roman cross just big enough to hang a man. And the result of that, of using that tool is summarized here in verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, on that very small tool, that restorative tool on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. But he did more than just pay its full penalty. When Jesus rose from the grave, he defeated the power of sin, the power of sin and death in all of its forms. And when he comes again, he will remove the very presence of sin 
Every last remnant of sin and death in all of its form, death, decay, disintegration, spiritual alienation, relational brokenness. See, this is the good news of Christmas, of Advent, to hear what God has already done, that He came near in Jesus to do what we could never do, to restore all things, to make peace, to fix everything that has been broken by the fall. And this is the same hope that Paul wrote in his Christ poem and that we sing today in the word of Handel's joy to the world. No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground, because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. See, but it gets better than that even. The hope of Advent isn't just that we have a God who restores a broken down house, as glorious as that is his goal is not simply to make a big, beautiful, empty house that we can all gawk at, but he wants to fill that house and make it a home. And so he fills it with his people, with his children that he takes as his own to live with him in absolute trust and intimacy and delight. And then he allows his children to participate in building up the rest of his house in filling it with all kinds of wonders, even presently, even now, as Jesus, who raised after his resurrection and sits on the right hand of God, by his Spirit, he's working through his people to restore his house. And and the second stanza clarifies this in verse 18. It says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. See, between the cross and an eternal glory, the church presently stands as the embodiment of Jesus, of his love, of his truth, of his grace. We are his body, his mouthpiece, his hands, his feet, his instruments. And as head of his body, Jesus rules over us and he strengthens us and he directs us along his path and he fills us with all we need to accomplish his all in all. And he is actively working through his people, through you and me who are his agents, through his instruments and his tools and his hands to work to build his house, to restore his kingdom, to bring his healing touch to the sick and despairing, his counsel to the ignorant and wayward, his mercy to the sorrowful. And I'm proud to be part of a church that is doing that in so many ways. Deacons that are doing this behind the scenes in ways that are not even talked about or spoken about or known. Deaconesses that are regularly visiting those who are homebound and sick and bringing the healing touch of Jesus and the comfort of Christ. This is a beautiful messianic hymn for it proclaims who he is, that Jesus is the Lord of glory, the unique God-man born into human history. And it proclaims what he did, that he is the Lord of redemption, that his work of redemption is for his people once and for all to pay for the penalty of their sin, making peace through his blood on the cross. But his work of redemption continues through his people as he fills his house with his people who get to now participate in his work of redemption. This is great news. And I want to close with just one small question. So what? How do, we, how do we apply this beautiful poem? How do we respond to it? And I want to encourage you 
to sing this poem with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. With all your heart and soul, reflect on this poem and sing it with worshipful hearts, turning to God to see, look at what he has done for you. This Lord of glory, whose glory the heavens could not contain, came down and walked on this tennis ball of a planet so that he could restore relationship with you. That is how valuable you are to him. That is how much he loves you. Turn to him to find rest for your soul. Let no other rest intrude. Set your heart and soul upon his patient love that seeks to restore you with whatever you are wrestling with. Engage him with your heart and soul. And then engage him with your mind intellectually. Take every thought captive to Christ. See the blueprint in his word. Remind yourself constantly that his plan is to restore all things. It is a slow but sure work. Paul Tripp says it this way. See, while it's hard to live in a house that needs to be restored, in some ways it's even harder to live there while the restoration takes place. Not only is everything more difficult in a broken house, there's also dust and dirt the dust and dirt of restoration, and try as you might to keep the dust sealed off in one room, you find grit in the drawers and on your food. See, some days we just don't want to face this restorative work that God is doing in our lives and in our family and in our community. It's too hard and it's too exhausting. And we don't think it's ever going to be completed. And other days... We get so used to it, we forget the mess we're living in for the moment until we step on a rusty nail and we're reminded. And we're tempted to just dream of what it could look like someday to live in a house that needs no restoration. But the the important thing is is that, that we need to remind ourselves intellectually, take every thought captive to Christ, holding on to God's promises, peering again at his word, at his blueprint, at his plan to restore and make things all, all things glorious. Even the ugly things and the hard things in your life right now are part of God's restoration plan. So sing with your heart and soul and your mind and last with your strength, which means practically get to work. Get to work at home, get to work In your community, whatever you do, do your work as unto him. At school, at play, in private, in public. Whatever your hand finds to do, do for his glory. And do that whether you're gifted in that area or you're not gifted. Do it whether you see immediate results or not. Work trusting him to work through your efforts. Work whether the results come fast and easy or slow and hard. Work whether you think things are being appreciated that you do or people don't even notice. Work because the one you're working for is worthy. And because he is worthy, you can work with patience and vision. See, he is worthy. Our God is worthy for you to work patiently with your children and with your spouse. Our God is worthy for you to show forbearance to your boss and your clients Our God is worthy for your diligence as a student to honor him with all that you're learning so that you can glorify him in your job someday. He is worthy of it all. And so that is how this applies. Join and sing in this 
messianic poem as a, as a hymn with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength meditating upon it, this great and glorious restorative work that we have because we have a God who's come. Let us pray. God, thank you for the hope that we have of Advent, that you are a God who has come not with a wrecking ball to destroy and to condemn, but you, you have come with, with small hand tools to, to restore, to fix all that's broken in us and around us, in heaven and on earth. And Lord, let us be captivated by this restorative work that, that you are doing and, and the opportunity we have to participate in it as we get to live in your home as you're building it and restoring it. And so, Lord, let us take up our tools. Let us take up our small crosses and go to work alongside you. We pray this for your glory, for the growth of this beautiful house that you are building. In Jesus' name, amen.